Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Uh, last uh, class session we talked about Tarantino's uh, Reservoir Dogs and this is our first class session with Robert Rodriguez. Um, so obviously we're going to start at the beginning. We're going to start with uh, El Mariachi, uh, which is a film that uh, Robert Rodriguez shot on his own for about $7,000 in Mexico, not even really to with the with any hopes of anybody seeing the movie. Um, all, he really just wanted to do it uh, for practice. Uh, we'll kind of get into this, um, but I want to give you a little bit of history here with, with, uh, with Robert. Robert spent 12 years shooting shorts with a camera that his dad had bought for sales presentations. Um, his father was a salesman and so he, he shot videos on his own to kind of help, um, help demonstrate products. And, uh, so when his father wasn't using the camera, he would use the camera and use one of his nine siblings, uh, or all any, any of his nine siblings as cast and crew and just shoot something. And he said that when you, this is, this is a quote that I pulled straight from, uh, Robert Rodriguez interviews, um, in an interview entitled Mr. Mariachi. That's a book, by the way. Uh, Robert Rodriguez interviews. Uh, when you use a video camera, you don't need a sound man because it has a built-in sound. You don't need a cinematographer because it has automatic exposure. I was always used to being a one-man crew, so when they handed me a film camera, I just shot it the same way. I took my own light reading, recorded my own sound separately, etc., etc. So one of the one of the beauties of shooting all these little short films just around his house. Um, is it gave him a lot of experience and it, it, it helped him learn a lot quickly through hands-on trial and error. And again, in the interview, Mr. Mariachi, he says, every filmmaker has at least 30 bad moody movies in him. And the sooner you get, get them out, the better off you are. So you want to make a film, make videos first. It's the only way you're going to learn. And I think there's some real value in that kind of a mindset where a lot of us have dreams of doing great things in this industry, but in order to do that, we really need to practice first. Um, and the more we practice, the better off we are. And what's crazy is how much easier that practice is now. I mean, DSLRs get a great image, better than the old video cameras did, certainly. Um, we don't have to edit tape. You know, all you need is Adobe Premiere or Final Cut or whatever, um, and you're off to the races in editing. Um, things have gotten much cheaper, much easier, and so a lot of us really, really the only thing that, that we're lacking is the time to sit down and do these. But aside from that, we really have very little excuses to not go out and make things, which is which when I started reading a lot of these a lot of these interviews of Robert Rodriguez, I realized how little excuses I had. Um, so I'm hoping that I can sort of lead by example here uh, with my new YouTube channel where my goal is to just and it, it's tied right into Hitchcock University. YouTube channel is Hitchcock University. Um, basically I'm 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 just going to do 
at least for a year, I'm going to do a Robert Rodriguez experiment. I'm just going to try to shoot one thing every month, just put out one video every month. Each one of them is going to challenge me in some way in skills that I feel I need to grow. And in order to keep all of you guys, all of you all, um, up to date, I want to, uh, uh, I want to pair each video with a commentary track so that you guys can understand what technical challenge I was facing, um, how I tried to overcome it, whether or not I feel that it worked, etc., etc. Um, so look for that. Hopefully by the end of January, the first video will be up and end of February, etc., etc. So because of Robert's background, he was used to doing things on his own. And so he became very independent-minded. Um, and as we will see, that has really affected the way that he's done films, even to a large scale. But I think that there's a lot we can learn from him, um, especially from his earliest film, El Mariachi. So to give you a little bit of backstory, Robert Rodriguez made a, a short called Bedhead, which you can go find. Um, and he made it for about $800. And with that, Rodriguez realized that that if he did it the same way, he could probably make a feature film for about $8,000. But that meant doing it the exact same way he did Bedhead, where he's the, pretty much the only crew. And that meant editing on tape, which is something we'll get into. So he started dreaming uh, with a friend of his, a man by the name of Carlos Gallardo, what a feature film for them would look like. And... Since they were, well, Carlos Gallardo was from Mexico and Robert Rodriguez was from Austin, Texas. Um, something that was immediately around them that, that they felt was an attainable goal was to make a movie that would be able to be released on the Spanish video market or the Spanish language video market. So it wouldn't go to theaters. It would go straight to video and would be released in this small niche uh, low budget video market where movies were made for $30,000, $50,000, something like that. Usually with a, uh, usually with a soap opera star or someone famous from, from Spanish television, some kind of a big name like that. Um, but they figured that if they just did an action movie that would, that had a decent story was well-paced, and looked bigger than it was, they could probably get away without even having a big star. Although, Carlos Gallardo did have some connections in the um, in the Mexican film and television industry. Uh, he was a production assistant on Like Water for Chocolate and knew someone who knew um, a Spanish soap star, although that never panned out. They, they, they did try to get, cast her, but that never, that never worked for them. So everyone in the film, El Mariachi is, are, are amateurs and everyone in front of the camera is all non-actors. But they, they really figured that, that, that if they did this, if they made a movie for the Spanish language video market, then no one would really see the movie. So it really didn't matter what they did. So it was kind of, they, it gave them, sort of a freedom to experiment, to not worry too much about things like continuity, um, and to just kind of do whatever it is they wanted to do. 
um, and to not get too down on themselves when things weren't working right. Because really, they figured this would just be a movie for practice. And if they could sell it to the Spanish language video market for twice what they put into it, then they could take that money, roll that into a slightly bigger budget film, and then using all the knowledge that they had acquired, make a better movie. So they figured if we put $10,000 into the movie, we can probably sell it to the Spanish language video market for 20000 Because this is a... This is a... An industry that's used to spending about thirty, you know, twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars on a movie, so it wouldn't be that unreasonable to expect that they would buy it for twenty thousand dollars, which is really not a lot of money in filmmaking. Um, again, from the interview, Mr. Mariachi, uh, Robert Rodriguez says it was the best film school I could think of. Put an investment of less than ten grand, sell it for twenty, and take that money and go make another film, then another. The plan was to do three of these movies, which he did end up doing just not the way he expected. But the plan was to do three of these movies, low budget, kind of on his own, minimal crew, minimal gear, um, and just get as much experience as he could. Because by doing every job, he would become good at every job, which would mean that when he did show a movie to someone who wanted to hire him and they said, well, I don't really like the story, but I like your camera work. He said, well, I wrote it, but I also did the camera work. Or, well, you know, some of this is sloppy, but I really like your sound design. He said, well, I did that too. And it would give him experience at every level so that no matter what, he knew he, he, uh, he had technical skills in everything. So everything else that I'm pulling from from here on out is from Rodriguez's book, Rebel Without a Crew, which is a book I would encourage everyone here to read because it, it, it really demystifies the process of how to do this on your own. But it also, I find it really encouraging because so if a couple of years ago, right out of college, um, I shot, I shot a feature length film with friends and I was able to do, you know, it was a, it was an adaptation of a Shakespeare play, um, and we were able to do a lot of the things that Robert Rodriguez did, which is borrow equipment, you know, get all your locations for free, all that kind of thing. Um, and we ended up spending about $2,000 on it. Most of that went to food to feed the cast and crew because we had a large cast. Um, but everybody worked for free on it, you know, and we shot it over the weekends and then... And then we'd go away, do rehearsals and production meetings during the week, and then come back on the weekend and shoot again. Um, and so a lot of the things that he experienced are things that I am familiar with that I, I, I would imagine have to be almost universal problems in the micro-budget um, world of filmmaking. Because the thing is, yes... $7,000 is a lot of money, especially in 1991, but 6,400, I think, went to went to just the film stock because he shot it on 16-millimeter film. Um, and we don't have to do that anymore. That's the beauty. You don't have to shoot film anymore. Um, so you can make a movie for much cheaper. I think there was only... He said about $600 on the screen... Um, and, and even that was in blanks and squibs 
um, and things of that major to, to make it look like a real action film. So yeah, I, I, if you haven't read the book Rebel Without a Crew, um, I can't recommend it enough. Um, I, it's, it's, it was very inspiring to me and very, very real. Um, because it's, it's, it's just his journal entries from when he was making the movie. And so you get these real in the moment thoughts of how things are working. Is this going to work? Is it not going to work? I don't know. Because it's easy to look at this film and say, well, yeah, it's Robert Rodriguez. Of course, he was always going to pop as a director. That was always going to work. But he certainly didn't feel that way. And we'll get into that in a little bit. So one of the things Rodriguez did to raise the money was, and and this is the most famous part of this, is he got $3,000 for uh, participating in an experimental drug trial uh, for a month. So for a month, they're giving him these pills that he has no idea really what they're for, what they're going to do to him. Um, but over the course of that month, he gets $3,000. And he thought that was perfect because he'd been, he'd been working really hard. He'd been in school. He'd been doing, you know, he'd been pulled a hundred different directions. And finally for a month, he didn't, he literally could not go anywhere. So it helped him, gave him time to sit down and write the script. And by the time he was out, he, he had most of the script, which turned out to be about 50 pages. One of the things that Rodriguez struggled with, which is, I think, something that a lot of us probably struggle with, is most of us, and and, and the same was true for Rodriguez, are used to writing shorts. You know, usually nothing over 20-ish pages, right? And sometimes even shorter than that. So writing a feature became really difficult. He, he, he didn't know how to keep the action going, how to keep it moving. Um over what he was hoping would be closer to 90 minutes, but he only had about 50 pages, and I'm sure a lot of you are familiar. One page, more or less, equals one minute of screen time over the course of an entire script. So if you have about 50 pages, you're going to end up with about a 50-minute movie in theory. Um, So what he ended up doing was kind of structurally trying to think of it as, as three shorts, and trying to make it three shorts that were tied together in a way that made sense. Oftentimes, you know, repeating certain actions um, and then putting a twist on the third one. Things like that. Just just trying to basically trick it into being a feature in some ways by using these kinds of shortcuts. Thinking of it as three shorts instead of one big feature. Um, and I have found the more you break down your script the easier it really is to get a feature out of it. There's a video on YouTube. I can't remember who did it. Uh, I didn't even think I was going to talk about this. Um, about the five-act structure instead of the three-act structure. Most of us are familiar with three-act structure. That's what everybody teaches you a story is, beginning, middle, end, right? Well, if you really break it down, most films have closer to a five-act structure where every 15 to 20 pages based on average, especially in the middle, the middle three acts, um, we kind of reach a new, you know, a question gets answered. And usually the answer is no. You know, is the hero going to defeat the villain? No. Okay. So that gets us to the next part. And 
and so in my in my limited experience in writing, I'm not a particular great or prolific writer, um, but I'm writing a script with a friend right now. Um, in our experience, it becomes much easier the more you break down a script into smaller segments to fill out those segments in a way that's natural and helps keep things moving. So yeah, that's 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 what I have to say about Rodriguez's structure. I think it was a, a um, an intelligent idea, especially when it's your first feature. Um, so then he goes about producing the film. Um, his leading man, Carlos Gallardo, uh, his his good friend, um, really really helped him a lot in this because he was from the town that they were shooting in, knew a lot of the people, was able to get a lot of the things. And, and, and he wanted to make this movie just as much as Rodriguez. So even though Rodriguez did a lot of the crew, he did a lot of the technical tasks. Uh, Gallardo did, did, was was instrumental in, in getting this film made as well. Uh, he did a good job of helping them work the local politics and 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 find all the locations and, and, and do a lot of the producing things as well as being the leading man. Uh, so then they, you know, they borrow a camera from a friend. They buy a couple of shop lights with 250-watt bulbs. It was shop lights. I'm not talking about, like, the, the, the lights that sit on stands. I'm talking about the lights that have a clip and the silver dome, and you screw a bulb into them, and they have a little switch. That's all he had for lights. And when you look, watch the film, it looks like it's lit really, really well. And, and the reason it looks so good is because he shot all of his dialogue in medium and close-up. Um, no master shots. Um, part of that was for technical reasons and part of that was for logistical. There's a lot that went into that reasoning. Um, but what that allowed him to do was bring the lights in as close as possible, which made them as soft as possible, which made them look very flattering on the actors. You know, with just a little bit of gel, a little bit of uh, diffusion. Um, in some of the scenes, he puts a red gel on when he's for the bad guys, etc. Um, and one of the things that Rodriguez did was he really leaned on his experience as a cartoonist to help him pre-visualize the film. And this is where having, having experience in another visual medium can be helpful. I can't really speak of this from personal experience because uh, I, I've never been much of a, an artist outside of with a camera. Um, and even then, I don't know that I would quite say that I qualify as an artist with a camera. Um, I can't draw. I can't paint. Um, I, I, I can't do any of that. But if you have that skill, utilize that skill. Try to tell stories in images, sequential images even, um, because that can help you with your pre-visualization, help you understand. So if I get this shot, then this shot, then this shot, and they cut together like this, then that'll tell the story. You know, it's... It, there's a reason a lot of people storyboard their movies. I'll put it that way. Um, he said in Rebel Without a Crew, it comes down to me. No, 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 no. Excuse me. I think this is from Mr. Mariachi or from one of his interviews from from the book, Robert Rodriguez interviews. It says it, it comes down to making a decision ahead of time on what you're going to use. I decide that I wanted a certain line in close up. And live with that decision instead of shooting it from 10 different angles and then deciding later, later being in the edit. So like, for example, one of the lenses he was able to borrow was this zoom lens. And so between lines, he's zooming in and out to reframe so that he wouldn't have to reset the camera, reset the lights, reset everything. 
Yeah. Um, and just, and just live with, yeah, this line is going to be in this, in this composition and that's just how it's going to be. Um, you know, in between lines, he knew he could cut away to another shot, you know, a reaction shot, the other line, whatever it was, you know, and, and, and he didn't shoot wide master shots in part because he couldn't afford to, um, especially in like the bars, for example, he didn't have money for extras. He couldn't get people to populate the bars. So he just shot, you know, he just shoot the bar scenes in close up, and, you know, just make it look like there were people in the bar or, or make it sound like there were people in the bar. Or shoot a big crowd shot on another day, you know. So, and then, well, and then the other thing is that that allowed him to move much faster. By deciding beforehand what he needed, it allowed him to move much faster as a shooter, which uh, which kept him from taking up all of the actors' time because these people had lives, and they were just doing it basically out of the kindness of their heart. A lot of them, so. So he didn't take up any much of their time, which meant they were more likely to come back. And that was something that he was always very conscious of, was conscious of the other people's time around him. And because he was moving faster, there wasn't a lot of time for them to just sit around and not have anything to do, which again made them more likely to come back. But if you want to talk about shooting dialogue, Rodriguez, because he was the only crew, had to do something that's very unorthodox. He would shoot all the scenes silent. You know, they would go through their lines. You know, they would say their lines. They would do all the all the actions. But he wasn't recording any sound. And then after the fact, he'd set down the camera. Then he'd stick a tape recorder right up as close to their face as he could get. And then have them say their lines. Now, for those of you who know much about post-production at all, I can imagine that 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 idea that concept is freaking you out um we're gonna get to how he dealt with that in post-production he knew it was going to be a problem and he had a plan and we'll get to that in a second i kind of want to leave you in suspense on that one but the reason he had to do that was because he's serving as the director the co-writer the producer the camera the sound sound man and the editor he did not bring anybody else out there nobody he didn't bring anybody else with him except for his, his leading man and his producer, but, you know, who were the same guy. Um, and that guy didn't know anything about the technical skills of, of any of those, so he couldn't do it for him. You know, plus they didn't have a boom mic. They couldn't get one. You know, they didn't have anything like that. One of the other things that, that he did not anticipate but had to figure out how to deal with on the fly um, they were so remember this is shot in Mexico. Um, they'd been they they had filmed a number of their shorts in Mexico, so the people there knew them. And Car Carlos Gallardo, the leading man, he was from Mex he was from that town. But and this is ninety one. The police officers let them borrow weapons for the movie, so long as there was a cop there to, you know, to oversee everything. Um. So what they would do is they borrow these 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 Uzis from the cops, and then and then take these Hollywood blanks that they bought. Well, the the issue is in Hollywood, they put a second barrel inside the barrel so that the shell will eject. Because what happens when you fire a gun, right? You go bang, firing pin hits the shell casing that has the uh, the charge on it bullet goes well not the bullet because it's a blank right boom explosion happens you get the sound you get the muzzle flash you get all the things right 
but with that smaller barrel in, it creates enough pressure that the gun knows to eject the shell. But real guns don't have that, obviously. So all they got was a bang, and they couldn't go again because the gun was jammed because there was still a shell in the chamber. So they have these Uzis that they're borrowing from the cops, but they can't even shoot semi-automatic. They can't go bang, bang, bang. They, they can't even do that. They, they just get boom, and then they have to cut and start over again. But he has to make these Uzis look like they're shooting, you know, full automatic. Just, you know. So what he does is he gets multiple shots of the gun from multiple angles every time it shoots. So bang, move, move the camera a little bit, get a different shot. Bang, move the camera. And then he, the other thing he did was he shot extreme close-ups of just the end of the barrel with the muzzle flash going. And then figured he'd figure out how to put these pieces together in post. He had a plan. Again, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, and the other thing Rodriguez did was he just shot a lot of slow-mo. Just, just shot a ton of stuff in slow-mo because it looks big budget, first of all. But it also, it also stretched the runtime because he, he was afraid he was going to run short. He had a 50-page script, but he needed, hopefully, a 90-minute movie. He needed you know something definitely over feature length. Came out to about 80, but we'll get there. Um, so the slow-mo helped him look like a bigger, helped it look like a bigger move, but it also kept that runtime longer. Um, but one of the issues of being a one-man crew is you end up doing jobs that you have no idea what you're doing. So for example, he says, we set dress the upstairs for Domino's bedroom and tub scenes. As I was moving furniture around, placing the tub on a carpet, and trying to fix up the bed using materials at hand, I stopped and looked around and thought, what the hell am I doing? I'm no decorator. Why am I set dressing? This looks like shit. I guess that's what happens when you try to wear too many hats. You find most of them don't fit. I wish to try to remember that line because when Rodriguez gets to Hollywood, that mentality shifts uh, somewhat. Um... So they shoot the movie in two weeks. They spend $600 on what's actually on screen and about $6,400 on film. It was like 25 rolls of film, 25 10-minute rolls of film. I think they were 400-foot mags of 16-millimeter. Um, so then he brings it all, like he, gets, he sends it off, gets it all developed, they send him back videotapes, um, which then he uses those to cut. Um, he said, I go to watch my raw footage for the first time, which is a scary experience to say the least. Now that, is, now that it's too late to go back and reshoot anything, even if it didn't come out. But I was genuinely pleased to see all my shots exposed and somewhat in focus. Good enough anyway. I had prepared myself for a good amount of the material to be worthless, so I was pleased to see that there were no scratches or unusable shots. And then he said in, in, in a parenthetical, I have a very lenient idea of what usable shots means. This is the biggest thing about low-budget filming. You have to be willing to compromise. You cannot afford to be a hard-ass about this. You cannot afford to be the guy who says, no, it has to be perfect. It has to all be exactly in focus. It has to, be, you know, it has to look like a Hollywood film. It's never going to look like a Hollywood film. If you're shooting that low budget, you cannot afford to be ridiculous about this. 
I don't care that there's an obvious mistake in the shot. I don't care that it's that that it goes in and out of focus. I don't care that it might be entirely soft. You see soft movies in Hollywood all the time, soft shots in Hollywood all the time. You have to lower your expectations if you're going to make this movie, especially. And this is the beauty about going into a movie that for you it's just practice. For you, no one's going to see it anyway, so who cares? It's just practice. So he gets all his footage. Um, the first thing he did was cut three trailers, actually, um, which was good for him because it helped keep his motivation up because the trailers looked really exciting and, and it would give him a little bit of a boost. And then when someone asked him, Hey, what are you doing? He could pop in the trailer and say, well, look, this is what I'm doing. And then they would get excited about it. And then he would get excited about it and have that little extra push because post work, especially on your own can be very tedious, especially, especially when you're doing what he was doing, which is cutting analog tape which really is a process I don't really understand. I never had to do this, and I've never really seen anybody do it. I'm not exactly sure how this works. I know it has something to do with, like, two tape decks, and you play one and pause. I don't really know. Anyway. Um, so, cuts his two trailers, does a rough cut of the film um, before cutting on the master so that he just kind of gets it blocked out easily and, and can go from there. Um, and then he has to do the lip sync. Right. He has to take all those wild lines, all those all those separately recorded lines of dialogue and match them up to the movie. Now, some of his non-actors um, were were like robots. Every time they said the line, they said it the exact same way. And some of them were not. So he gets it synced up. And what would happen is it would start in sync and then it would slip. And then and then he would get what he calls rubbery lips, where the where the, the, the mouth doesn't match what's being said. And then it might slip back into sync, and then it would come back out again. It takes about two weeks to do this. He, he thought it was going to take like three days. This is like one of the most annoying parts of, of, of what happened. He said, it's freezing outside, and I'm dragging around all these tapes, my cassettes, all this junk, working my butt off. This movie better pay off. All we wanted to do was make back our investment and maybe a little more. But now after all this work, I've decided that it better make us a good amount of money or I probably won't make part two. I told Carlos and he's feeling the pressure. He wants to make another one, but he knows that if this one doesn't make at least double our investment, he can forget about part two. This one is killing me. My back hurt. My back hurts. My eyes hurt. My head hurts. My wallet is empty. I keep trying to remind myself that I'm single-handedly replacing a crew of about 100 people, trying to feel good about that, but it's not working. This movie is starting to feel like work. It never was that before. I know this point personally because I did most of the post work. I did probably about three quarters of the post work on my own. Uh, well, half the post work on my own for the movie that I made. It just never stops. Every time you think you're making progress, you find five other things that you forgot that you needed to do. And when you're syncing stuff by hand, like he is, wild tracks to recorded video you you have no prayer you have absolutely no prayer in the world so he spends two weeks syncing and then finally what he's able to do once he gets it synced and he's actually in the edit what he does is actually really brilliant all the dialogue scenes the minute somebody the second somebody's audio slips and it's not in sync anymore he would just cut away he shot all these inserts he shot reaction shots of all the people he just cut away to something else and then when they were in sync, even if it was just for a couple words, he cuts back to them, then he cuts back to whatever, then they cuts away to something else, you know, 
um, he's got all these insert shots of this dog in this, um, uh, in this one room, this dog just like looking, you know, just laying there and just looking, uh, he's got reaction shots of the other person that, 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 you know, we're, you know, the other person's talking to. So he can just cut away and then cut back. And what's interesting about that is even though it was done out of necessity, it really keeps the pace of everything up. It really keeps this movie moving in a weird way. I mean, not that weird because the because he keeps changing shots every three seconds, but it, it brings a new life to the movie that wouldn't have been there otherwise. So he sort of stumbled into something that was kind of genius because otherwise this this might have been a boring movie. It's tough to really know. And then and then we talked earlier about about the blanks for the Uzis, right? So he has to cut around that. So what he would do is is take you know, for, start on the shot, close up of the gun, you know, the gun going off from one angle and then cut to whoever got shot or wherever the bullets landed, cut back to the gun from a different angle for another bang, another firing or cut in to his, his extreme close up of the muzzle flash, because that's a shot that's so close. And especially with the muzzle flash going, you can repeat that shot two or three times and no one's going to know. It's just going to look like a gun going off. And then he can cut back to, um, you know, the person dying or whatever. And if you do it in quick succession like he did and then lay the soundtrack of an automatic weapon going underneath it, nobody can tell the difference. It's it's seamless. It really is. So he had all these problems that arose from production, but he was able to fix almost all of them in the edit. And that's the other thing. If you're a creative editor, you can get away with anything. You really can. You can get away with almost anything happening on the set. So long as you're a creative editor and you shoot enough coverage on the day when you're there on set to get around it. So it's kind of a catch-22. And as these problems arose, he knew he was going to have problems in the edit because he was going to be the editor and he had experience editing. So he knew what the issues were. So he covered himself by shooting more than he needed on the set. And by the end of the day, Robert was amazed that the film stretched to be 80 minutes because it was only a 50-page script. Now for the interesting part. Movie's done, right? His wife has seen him toil over this movie for uh, months at this point. And he says, he records in his book, Liz wants to see the movie. She hasn't seen any of it and, it, and is anxious to see how it came out. I'm not that anxious to show it to her. After all that work, I was starting to think that maybe the movie was coming out okay, but what if it blows? I'd hate to have her sit through the whole thing, not like it, and then have to tell me she thought it was great. She's seen me practically kill myself making it. She propped her, she's, she's seen me practically kill myself making it. She propped herself on the bed, and I put on the tape. I laid silently beside her while she watched. She laughed a few times, but I thought she was bored. It was the most nerve-wracking experience. About 70 minutes into it, she turned to me and said, this is paced really well. I got excited. Really? Because this is where it actually picks up again. I told her. After the movie, I turned off the tape and asked her for her honest opinion. She told me that she gives it three and a half stars for the movie itself, but then knowing all the insane work I put into it and considering I did it without a crew and with crude equipment and very little money, she said she gives it five stars. I have mixed feelings about what she said. One, what she said was great. It makes me feel good. But then again, she's my wife. So I don't know if she's just biased or if the movie is good. After working on something for so long, you completely lose perspective. I just hope we can sell it. This is 
the problem with being an artist, especially on a project like this that is so immersive that kind of the rest of the world fades away. You don't even know by the end if what you did was any good because you're self-conscious about it to the point that you you can overanalyze it and convince yourself it's no good. And showing it to friends and loved ones isn't really going to help because you're never really going to trust their opinion. <laughs> because you know they have to say they liked it or they're biased enough that they are going to like it even if it's no good. But with all that said, Robert Rodriguez and his 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 buddy, his leading man and producer, Carlos Gallardo, they go to a Spanish video market distributor. That falls through. So their whole plan to sell this movie and make and 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 double their investment fails. Now what? Well, Rodriguez says, "Well, I guess I could send it to like some kind of agent." So he sends it to ICM, um, International International Creative Management, ICM. So he sends it to an agent over there. He sent, he doesn't send the movie. He sends him a trailer and maybe a couple other shorter pieces. They almost immediately call back to him and say, we want to sign you right now. He shows them the movie. They sign him. They then take the movie and start showing it to every studio in Hollywood. And a bidding war starts. The movie's finally bought by Columbia, whose original plan... This is the craziest part. Their original plan is to have him remake the movie in English, right? Now with a budget and a crew. But then they show it to an audience. They test screen the 16 millimeter film blown up to 35 to an audience. The audience loves it. So they're like, never mind. I guess we're just going to distribute this. They distributed a subtitled Spanish movie, Mexican movie made for $7,000, and only 600 of that is actually on the screen. And they just spend a million dollars on the marketing campaign, you know, get it sent to a lot of festivals where it does very well. Uh, it wins the Audience Award at Sundance. And, and, and then they sign Robert Rodriguez to a two-picture deal. And it, it starts his Hollywood career. Now, that's an amazing story. These days the odds of you making a little independent movie for no money in your backyard and getting getting it not only distributed but getting but getting launching a career out of it is uh significantly lower than it was in 1992 92 93 um because the fact of the matter is independent cinema's changed a lot once rodriguez did this and then uh, Kevin Smith made Clerks, and Darren, Off Darren Aronofsky made Pie, um, etc., etc. Um, the the independent film industry changed to where, like, it basically now in order to get into something like Sundance, unless you're doing a documentary, if you're doing a narrative film, you have to have a big name attached to it somewhere, anywhere. And the odds of any of us landing that, uh, if you don't know the person or if you haven't really done enough work to warrant some kind of notice by somebody, is really low. Not impossible. It's just, it's, it's just lower. But here's the beauty of that. You know what that frees us up to do? That frees us up to make our 30 bad movies that Rodriguez talks about. You know, if we've got 30 bad movies in us, he says every filmmaker has them. Get them out of the way now. Go, just go shoot stuff and learn by shooting. You know, 
this, this gives us the opportunity just to practice whatever technical skills we want because we have the ability to do that. It doesn't take nearly as much money now as it used to. It just takes some time. So if you can free up some time in your schedule, you can get a lot of stuff done. And you can get a lot of learning in. And from that, you might be able to build up to being able to land, you know, some kind of a name. And then from there, get a Hollywood career, if that's what you want. But if nothing else, you know, go into this like like Rodriguez went into El Mariachi. Just think, nobody's ever going to see this. So it really doesn't matter if I fail. I just need to learn. I honestly think that's that's the one of the biggest lessons that, that, that we can gather from this film. But there's one other thing that I want to encourage you to do. Um, we've thrown out a lot of numbers, a lot of money numbers. A lot of them have been pretty low. And I want you to stay in that mindset if you're going to do this. Because this is something Robert Rodriguez says in Reformation of Rebel Without a Crew. And this is, this is a, an idea that he still holds on to to this day. And we're going to see come up time and time again. But I want to give it to you now so that we can kind of start getting into this mindset. He says, instead of washing away your problems with a money hose, do it with your imagination. You have to start not thinking about, well, yeah, we could get that, but then we have to buy it. We have to do this. We have to do that. Don't do that. Don't do that at all. Start thinking about what can you borrow? Who do you know that has one? And if you don't know somebody, somebody you know might know somebody. That's one of the beauties of social media. We can reach out to people who we don't know through someone else sometimes and get a, and, 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 and come up with resources we didn't even know we were that close to. You know, six degrees of separation, right? We're only six degrees separated from everyone in the world. That's great. So you may not know someone who has a trailer, but someone else might know someone who has a trailer. And if you know someone, and if that person knows someone who has a trailer, maybe that person can talk that person into letting you borrow their trailer. Use your imagination. And if you can't, if you can't come up with a solution based on resources that you can beg, borrow, or steal then maybe there's another way around it. Maybe you don't need a tarantula. Maybe you can imply a tarantula in the way you shoot it. I don't know what you, you know, I don't know what you want to shoot, but whatever it is you want to shoot, you know, instead of washing away your problems with a money hose, do it with your imagination. Limitations are the greatest thing a creative person can have because without limitations, it becomes very hard to start sifting through ideas. But with limitations, you have to start being creative. That's all I got to say about that, because we're going to keep getting into this a lot, I imagine, this semester with Robert Rodriguez. Um, that's all I have for this episode, uh, or, or that that's all I have for this class session. Uh, coming up next is going to be Pulp Fiction, which I'm very excited about. Um, and then we're going to do Robert Rodriguez's second film, Desperado, which is a sequel to El Mariachi. And then we're going to talk about uh, Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez's first collaboration, uh, from dusk till dawn where, uh, Tarantino wrote the script, Rodriguez directed and then cast Tarantino in the film. Um, so that should be a lot of fun. Uh, thank you all for listening to this, to this class session of, uh, Hitchcock university. Um, I'm very much looking forward to, uh, what we'll be putting out on the new, uh, newly revealed, uh, Hitchcock university YouTube channel. Um, if you, so, so be on the lookout for that. Um, 
you will get updates on that. Those will come in through uh, uh, probably through our social media pages, through uh, Hitchcock University Facebook page and Hitch underscore U as in University on Twitter. Um, so look for updates there. Um, if I can do it through SoundCloud, I don't even know how I would do that. Um, I don't want to post new podcasts every, but also just by listening to the podcast, I'll try to keep you guys updated as best I can. Um, so yeah, look for those, uh, first one should be dropping uh, at the end of January. Uh, please, 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 please leave a like comment review something. Um, Wherever it is you listen to the show, whether it's Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, uh, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, Google Play, what have you. Um, thank you again for listening to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. I've been Taylor Bickle, um, and we'll talk to you again in two weeks. <laughs>